Good morning, church. Or good morning, church. Isn't it wonderful to be alive in the day of the Lord? Amen? Amen. We're good, aren't we? Praise looks good on you. Joy looks good on you. The Holy Spirit is here. Did you know that? Because I tell you, the Holy Spirit is here. And he's full and he's on us. And God just loves us to be together and loves us to enjoy his presence and all about who he is and what we're going to. And oh, what awaits us, the joy eternal. I just want to pick up um, my theme today. Can you just bring up the first slide, Heidi? <laughs> what have I written on here? Oh, my goodness me, Dr. Ingram. Yeah, I worried about this because I, get so, I have to write PowerPoints, and I don't now because I'm semi-retired, but for lectures, and I always automatically write Dr. Ian Grant, so I apologise for that. I was a bit... Anyway. Yes, where are you keeping your identity? <laughs> <laughs> so, that's my theme today, the marvellousness of the Bible. And intermittently over the years, I have talked about the importance of the word. And there are two things I want to pick up from earlier. Um, we've been talking about, Andy's brought the theme today about youthfulness, okay? Now, I love to earth what is going on in the spirit, because I love the spirit. And the spirit realm loves to contact earth, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, to earth the youthfulness aspect, let me tell you a bit of biology, very briefly, yeah, okay? I didn't, I didn't know that, did I? No. We didn't talk about that. No. This whole thing about youth, we didn't... We haven't talked about we haven't talked about it. So, if any, how many of you got shoelaces? Just look at your shoelaces, and you'll see on the end of your shoelaces probably little plastic things that hold the ends of the shoelaces together. They are called, anybody know what they're called, by the way? Aglets. Okay? Now, if you look at my shoes, A-E-G-L-E-T-S, they're called aglets. Uh, end, you know, they're the end of the shoelaces. Aglets. Now, if you look at the end of my shoes, my trainers that I'm wearing that I'm not wearing but near my seat, you'll see my aglets are not there. Okay? And you'll see that the ends of my shoelaces are, are frayed. They're frayed. They're getting all dismembered kind of thing. Okay? Now, the human chromosome has aglets. All right? That's what I'm trying to tell you. The human chromosome is strings of shoelaces. And at the end of each of these strings are these things called aglets. The biological term is telomere. We're all born with a specific length of telomere. 40,000 base pairs, if you're, uh, sorry, 10,000 base pairs if you want to be really technical. The aging process is related to the shortening of your telomeres. Your shoelaces get older and worn because your aglets fall off. Now then, this is where it gets really interesting. When your telomeres get old, as they get worn and you fall off to about 5,000 base pairs, things start happening in your body. You get older. And you get older because of a number of things that happen when these little strings start untangling. The control is lost. You start getting mutations. You start getting inflammation in the body for no known reason. There's indeed a, a syndrome called that of aging. You start getting all sorts of things. Cancer comes, atherosclerosis, heart attacks, all related to telomeres. Good news. Now, this is really interesting. The fact that the, there's a woman in 19... Uh, nine, no, 2004, I think. She got the Nobel Prize for discovering telomeres. It's so important. And um, you can lengthen your telomeres. Do you know one of the key ways that they've discovered in the secular world to lengthen your telomeres to make yourself younger? Hmm? Joy. Meditation. Exercise. Now let's translate that into the redeemed life, yeah? So we can speak to our telomeres, if you like, and there's scientific evidence for this, that if we pray and we read the word, what Andy was just saying last time, if we read the word, just reading the word lengthens your telomeres. It's scientifically proven, if you like. As you get in lengthen your telomeres, your youthfulness stays youthful. Yes! Amen? So do you see the way that we are translating our faith 
into an earthing exercise here. So if you pray and you meditate on the Lord and you read the word, you are keeping your body whole because the Lord keeps your telomeres long. Yeah? Yeah. It's true. Absolutely true. Now, one of the things that I've observed about Christians over many years is the average Christian looks a lot younger than their secular counterpart. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And it's because... We have the hope. We are filled with the joy. What does the Bible say? Joy inexpressible. You know, before we knew about telomeres, and I wasn't going to talk about this, but anyway, before we knew about telomeres, it's long been known in medical science that joy helps. It restores health because there's blessing in it and not cursing, isn't it? If you go, bless you, bless you. Janet, bless you. you. Bless Jane. Oh anyway, bless you, Jane. The Lord knows. Bless you, Jane. The, it, you receive it into your spirit, don't you? It does something. There is something that happens. Yeah? Just pray over us. Because I think this is a real revelation to you. And I just so, feel that you brought this revelation to us. So just pray over us. Yeah, so Lord, we want to thank you, Lord, that, Lord, you always want to earth your truth. And Lord, today, right now, I do pray a covering over us, Lord, in this truth, that, Lord, by worshipping you and focusing on on you, our telomeres get longer. And that brings the youth that we've been praying about. Because, Lord, as Andy said, We have eternal life and we bring eternal life. Lord, as we follow you and the joy of your presence infills us and overwhelms us and overflows from us, Lord. So, Lord, I speak youthfulness into this body of people, sons and daughters of the living God. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And just a part of my testimony, you know, I've always um, tried to bless patients in a way that just I speak to them in a way that helps them, if you like, yeah? You have to tell honest truth, but you can tell honest truth in different ways. And I've, I've, I've always frequently also gone, just bless you, as they've walked out in the room. And so many times when I've spoken to them, and this is not me, this is the Lord, hear this, yeah? Um, people have gone, God, I feel so much better now. Because you see, there's an impartation that occurs. The word is truth, is it not? Did I hit something? That was good. Bang! Yeah, the word is truth, isn't it? And just by saying to someone, bless you, something happens in the spirit realm. We've got to understand that. You know, so sicknesses of the enemy. We'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. But, you know, blessing in wonder and love and righteousness. Oh, it's all tied up in him. Amen? Isn't it good to be partaker of his holy nature? Blessed of him and filled with him. And I can't get enough. I, I can't get enough. Can you? So I'm going to move on, and hearing this, this is all linked together, the marvellousness of the scripture, because this is all linked. That what the Lord said to me in the last two or three weeks is, Ian, you must see everything through spiritual eyes. You've got to look at it through the spirit realm, and then you'll understand the earthly realm. Do not look at it the other way around. Do you understand? So many theologians have done it the other way around. They think they're marvellous intellectuals and they've got it screwed up, literally, that's affected generations of Christians. And we can talk about some of that, maybe another time. And so the Lord has really clearly spoken to me about, Ian, look at everything through spiritual eyes. Now today, what I'm going to do is bring, I hope, two or three strands together that, <laughs> strands? We were talking about strands, tailor mears. 
I'm going to bring two or three strands together that may seem completely unrelated, that I believe form the marvellous whole about where we are right now and what the Lord is going to do in us. And there is a backdrop against that, which is this. It seems to me that God is speaking to the remnant church about counting ourselves dead to flesh but alive in Christ. Amen? Amen? In every aspect of what that means. You no longer, I no longer belong to me. I totally belong to him. Everything I possess, everything that I am is his. It's his anyway. But you know we've got to have that revelation here. And the Lord is talking to the remnant church about my will, not your will. My ways, not your ways. My truth, not your interpretations. Yeah? Absolutely vital. So what's been happening over the last hundred years is that downloads of revelation have been occurring on the true church about the truth in a way never before seen. Interestingly, at the same time that counterfeit has been rising up about what the Bible is about. So just to quote you a simple thing, a theologian called Boltmann, who you may have heard of, a German in the early 20th century, invented this term, higher criticism, which was dismembered the Bible, or he tried to. That's a, you know, not good. Now the word of God is written by the Lord. The Bible testifies to its own truth. You need no other book but to know this is truth. And as you read it, the Holy Spirit inspires you and fills you. And it excites you. You know, time and again, recently, I've gone to the Word. The, the Lord's impressing on me the importance of knowing this. Yeah? It's, so, it's the Word and the Spirit, isn't it? We have the mind of Christ. Christ was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. Yeah? So we are the embodiment of all that. It's the Holy Spirit and fills us. And, you know, there's many scriptures. I won't go through them, but, you know, all scriptures God breathed, we read in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures. All scriptures. Okay? And we're going to prove that in a minute. Very briefly, but we're going to prove it. Scripture came not by the will of man, but by holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You only speak when you're moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen? We want to be moved by the Holy Ghost. Thus saith the Lord, and other similar expressions I've written here are stated more than two and a half thousand times in the Bible. So there's enough kind of evidence, isn't there, that the Bible is written by the Lord. Now, we can look about different aspects of actually the Bible being truth. Now, I just got a funny slide up here. Next, I've only got three slides, by the way. Next one, Heidi, I hope is the right one. Right, now then, it's there. The Gospel is written in Genesis. If you look at the names of every person named from Adam to Noah, okay, when you read the meaning of those names, it's the gospel. I put it down below. Man appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest. That's the meaning of those Hebrew names. Okay? The gospel is right at the beginning of Genesis to those who want to have a look at it. See that? No, that's okay. What don't you see? Oh, I see. <laughs> Shall I read it out? Man, I'm sorry, this is me writing small, isn't it? Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing, that is us, rest. In other words, eternal life. That is the gospel. And we've talked before that, um, and we won't talk about it today, but you know the gospel is written in the stars. It's the opposite of the counterfeit astrology. It's all there in Psalm 19. It's there in Job 38. The gospel is written in the stars. You know, it, it's, it's simply amazing. Now I'm briefly going to talk about 
a guy called Ivan Panin. I'm not going to do this in any detail because I just want to bring a principle here. But I want to show you that the Bible has got divine numeric structure. And that there is no other book ever written, or ever will be written, that has got that numeric structure. Now I want you to hear me and follow me here. I'm going to keep this really simple. Just for an example, the word of Moses is mentioned in the scripture 847 times. The last time it's mentioned is in Revelation 15. Okay? 847 is a factor of seven. The whole Bible is written around the number seven. You don't need to be a mathematician to see it. For example, in Revelation, there are seven angels, there are seven churches, there are seven lampstands, there are seven days of the week. Exactly. You see it everywhere. Seven, seven, seven. All right? Number of completion. You see that. When you dig deeper, it's all there inside and out. And I'm going to show you one very brief example. And this guy, Ivan Panin, was a Russian Jew, okay? And he lived at the turn of the 20th century, and he was an atheist. But he was a brilliant mathematician, and he actually ended up as a professor at Harvard University. He was reading the Bible just in Greek and realised something about the structure of John 1.1 that I've just noted to you. And he went, ooh, this is interesting. The only two... Uh, languages in the world where the letters have numeric significance are Hebrew and Greek, the two languages of the Bible. Now what we do is we've got our alphabet and then we've got our numbers, 1 to 10. But in Hebrew that doesn't work like that. Every letter has a numeric significance and there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, the same for Greek. You can therefore ascribe a value to every letter and a value to every word. Next slide. So this is, now I must tell you a funny story about this. This is real Hebrew on the left. I'm not pretending I understand it. But I switched my computer to Hebrew this week and to cut a long story, a very long story short, when I went to reboot it proudly the next day, being really chuffed myself, being able to work out how to write Hebrew using PowerPoint, the whole of, the whole of my computer was in Hebrew. <laughs> I logged on and the whole thing was Hebrew. My name was in Hebrew. Every, it was all, everything was on the right instead of being on the left, or the words on the bottom were all, it was all Hebrew. I tell you, I had a few palpitations. <laughs> so I then spent the next hour at least trying to get my computer back to speak in English. So you're now fluent in Hebrew. <laughs> so now I'm fluent in Hebrew. So all I'm saying here is that every Hebrew letter represents a certain number and has a numerical value. And those are the first 11 letters. That's what I'm trying to express in graphic form. Next slide. This is my last slide, because I'm not going to dwell long on this. Next slide. Sir, lady. Oh, sorry. There, right. Now then, this is the first sentence in the Bible. On the left, it's written in Hebrew. I want you to count the number of words. One, two, on the left, the left-hand column. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven! If you want to count the letters, 28 letters, factor of seven, yeah? If you look at the middle word, which has got just two, which has got the value of 401, yeah? And you count those two letters, you'll see on either side there's five letters making a total of seven. It's completely symmetrical. Okay? Okay, have you got a pointer? Have you got a, po a pointer? No. So, you see where it's number 401? If you see the word above it, where it says 86, if you count the number of letters in that 86, there's one, two, three, four, five. If you go down to where it's 395, and you count the number of letters to the left, it's one, two, three, four, five. Okay, you put those five on either side to the two in the middle, it comes to seven. It gives you a, a, a perfect symmetry, if you like. You need a pointer. 
Is it a, have you got a pointer? I've got a big stick. A big stick. A big uh, stick. A big stick. No, I'm just showing you where, so where it says God on the left-hand letter, the word God in Hebrew has five letters. Yeah. The word the heavens in Hebrew has five letters. Yeah. The word that's not translated in Hebrew here has <laughs> got two letters. Yeah. So you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You count the number of letters. One, two, three, four, five, Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight. Number of words: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. If you look at the the numerical value of the nouns, which is God, the heavens, and the earth, it comes to a total of seven, seven, seven. It's just giving you an example that the whole of the scriptures is built on the number seven. And believe it or not, through that you can work out that what's happened is that the scriptures have been handed down perfectly to us over the generations. It, if you like, it actually gives authentic, authenticity to the scriptures as being absolute truth. Now this is just one sentence in the Bible. Ivan Panin in 50 years wrote 42,000 pages on the numeric structure of the Bible being around the number seven. Okay? You can't make this up. It works in the Greek and it works in the Hebrew. It means it's utterly divine. They've, Ivan Panin challenged mathematicians to write sentences which had this kind of structure. No one could do it. They put it through computers. It's almost impossible for a computer to do it. So the point I'm trying to make is, this is supernatural. <coughs> totally, totally, totally supernatural. How did the writer of Revelation know that he had to put Moses in just once to make the number of times the word Moses occurs in the Bible a complete factor of seven? He didn't. You've got to remember that the Bible is written by over 26 authors. The number of the number of authors mentioned in the Bible, just by the way, is a factor of seven, just as a little, little throw aside. It's all, all supernatural. You can't make it up. So God is the numberer and the mathematician of the universe. Yeah? We all know the maths behind the universe. We're taught all this in physics. There is divine design out there. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It's just without comprehension, really. If I've got time, I'll give you a real stunning stuff at the end. But I think we need to uh, move on. It's 12 o'clock. So around this, I'm going to jump into another string. Now, I'm sure you're like me, that if you read chapter 1 of Matthew, it's a bit boring. It's the genealogy of Jesus. Just as an aside... If you look at the genealogy of Jesus in numeric structure, it's perfectly perfect. There's about 50 examples I can give you. Okay? But anyway, the genealogy of Jesus contains three interesting names and a fourth interesting person. And we're going to look at this. And you're going to say, what has this got to do? Well, it's to do with giving you an example of how to look at the Bible supernaturally. The four women we're going to look at is Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba. Now, why are we going to look at those four women? I'll tell you why we're going to look at those four women, because people have gone, why are they in the genealogy of Jesus? I mean, come on, man, they've all been a bit, you know. Why isn't Sarah... Rachel, Rebecca mentioned. Why is it these four women? Well, let me tell you just another interesting little sideline. But the three that are mentioned are T Tamar, Ruth and Rahab. They're mentioned by name. And guess what? If you add up their numerical structures, it's a factor of seven. Anyway, won't bore you with that. Bathsheba is not mentioned by name. She's called the wife of Uriah. Now, I'm going to take us briefly to Enoch. Enoch is not 
a canonical book, but it's referenced twice in the Bible, is it not? It's referenced in 2 Peter 2, and it's referenced in Jude, the 65th book, book of the Bible. We can go on about the number of books in the Bible, by the way, and how that's also seen in the scriptures. The Bible tells you that it will, there will be 66 books in the Bible. But anyway, we will ignore that. I'm just trying to just demonstrate to you how incredible this is. Okay? So if we look at 1 Enoch chapter 6, you will see these fallen angels, which are called watchers, come to earth at a place called Mount Hermon. <laughs> And they make a pact that they're basically going to have sex with women that they see beautiful. We've got to be very careful about the biblical definition of beautiful women. It, you'll read about it in Peter. It's all about the beauty of the soul and the beauty of the spirit and the way they walk, yeah? Now, in 1 Enoch chapter 8, you will come across what people call the Enochic template for what the watchers taught, okay? And to briefly say, it included things like illicit sex, metallurgy, if you like, um, uh, idols of metal, which includes putting them on your body, by the way, includes idolatry, includes war, and includes, actually, knowledge, okay? Sorry? Drugs. Drugs, yeah. There's a number. I, I'm just mentioning a few. The consequences of the watchers teaching man that we see everywhere, and again, they're quoted in one or Enoch, but the Bible mentions as well. So it's unrighteousness, evil, war, disease, famine, pestilence, etc. Okay? So the watchers, is clear, introduce that when they came to earth, because they were the fallen angels and they wanted sex with the beautiful women. All right? So, we need to ask, why are the, what's the purpose of the four women that I've mentioned in Matthew 1? So, any Jew reaching Matthew 1 would instantly know why these women are there. If you look at what happens in Genesis chapter 6, you will see that watchers look from above, they look down to below, they see beautiful women, they lay with them, and they have children. Okay? So let's look at Tamar. What happens about Tamar? So Tamar is actually, it's in, in Genesis 38, is actually the daughter-in-law of Judah. And incidentally, Jude, this is another play on words. This is why it's so important. But Judah um, has a first son by the name of Er, which has the same Hebrew root as the word watcher, interestingly. And he dies. But anyway, as you know, Judah's, um, Judah promises to Tamar after her husband dies. Tamar's the wife of Er. Tamar actually... Um, is promised Shelah, which is the thirdborn of, Ju uh, of Judah, but Judah doesn't really want that to happen. And in the end, you probably know the story very well, Tamar dresses up as a prostitute, Judah lays with her, and guess what? You get Perez, who's in the line of Jesus. So what's happening here? You have to ask yourself, what is going on? So what is happening is, is that the sin that you read about in um, in, in, if you like, Enoch, is being played out in this story. But the idea through the genealogy of Matthew that is occurring is the reversal of that sin. Okay? That is the idea. And you can see that repeated. If I can take you through... Have we any children here? No. I want to, I want to actually give one important point. Let's go to Ruth. Now, Ruth is a Moabite, or a Moabitess. What does Moabites represent in the Bible? Illicit sex, idolatry, war. Okay, they, you know, it was Balaam's way of getting the Israelites to fall. He couldn't put a curse on them, but he could trick them. So, 
she was a Moabite woman, but she um, was, if you like, um, into a, a Jewish family through um, Ahimelech that we read about, who was from Judah, and, and that side of the family died off, and you will remember that Naomi came back to uh, Israel with Ruth, and they had no money, effectively. Now, just to focus on one part of the story, Ruth ends up supernaturally meeting Boaz. Boaz, incidentally, means strength, but if you see it in the original Hebrew, it has a play on the word gibor, which means giant. What I'm trying to introduce is this concept is that this is all supernatural. We have to see it everything through unseen realm. When Ruth, so you'll read in the scriptures that Boaz gets, um, you know, Mary and drinks and goes to sleep. Naomi has said to Ruth, beautify yourself. It's using one of the illicit arts that we read about from the watchers. Beautify yourself and lay at the feet of Boaz. Actually, laying at the feet of Boaz in Hebrew is well known to be a euphemism. In other words, a metaphorical means of saying something else. Exposing your genitals. So in fact, what Ruth did was expose Boaz. So of course, when he's got a beautiful woman, uh, you know, wakes up to see a beautiful woman and he's exposed, there's obviously the issue of seduction taking place. Yeah? And this is well theologically, I've looked at this really deeply. Just about every good solid theologian agrees that is true. And what that introduces is the concept of what was happening with the watchers looking at beautiful women. This is the thing that Matthew is trying to imprint upon the readers of that genealogy, saying what this is about is reversing all that. Because at the end of the day, you get a total reversal by Jesus being born, okay? Through an immaculate conception, not through watchers who are fallen angels actually having, if you like, sex with the women on the earth. All right? So what I'm trying to present to you is this unseen realm that is acting, that, that is being reversed by Jesus. And we can go through Ruth. If you, well, Ruth, oh, sorry, I've done Ruth, but if you briefly, briefly Bathsheba, you read about David, what's he? He's on a high roof, he's looking down, he sees a beautiful woman, he has sex with her. Doesn't that remind you of a story that we read about in Genesis 6? What's happening here? It's all about God marking time on what happened in Genesis 6. And it's all about the unseen realm coming through all this genealogy. And it's reversed because, you're, you know, the baby that was born from Bathsheba was Solomon. Okay? In the line of Judah and later to become king. It was all about reversing. To prove that, Let's fast wine to Jesus. So you get Peter's confession of Jesus as Lord. Where did that occur? Mount Hermon. Do you see the incredible significance of that? That Jesus, uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is Lord on Mount Hermon, which is the place where the watchers come to, okay? Then two things happen. The first is Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Now then, Peter in Greek is kephas, which means little stone. Okay, Peter in Greek is petra, which means big stone. Now the Catholic Protestants and others have had interpretations of that. So the Catholics will go that Peter, it's on you that I've built the church. That's where the Pope comes from. That's wrong because actually in the Greek, it's little stone. Now the Protestants have gone on the rock of Jesus. I've built my church. That is also, I, I agree with that, but there's a bigger meaning here. The bigger meaning is that on this rock, Mount Hermon, where the gates of hell, that's what the Jews believed, the gates of hell were on Mount Hermon. The gates of hell shall not prevail. He's making a declaration about the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. In fact, we are going to do this place over. This is the ground zero of the church. And do you understand the authority in that? So what's happening here is Jesus is reversing 
all the stuff that went on in Genesis 6. It's, it, it is so much more. We understand and we correctly understand that Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. Okay? And we correctly understand, as is written in um, Romans, that of course there was a first Adam and a last Adam. We know all that. And we know that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. But what I'm trying to impress upon you is the Bible has got so much more to it than this that is so fully annihilates the works of the enemy, it's beyond comprehension. It's going to be more than beaten to dust. Okay? Everything is being redeemed. Everything is being reconciled. Everything is being made whole. And that's the important thing. Jesus was declaring to the watchers, your time is done. And that is what happened when he, uh, if you like, in, in Jude, I think it is, you know, he goes down and he speaks to the fallen angels that are there, and, and, the, and the Greek is Tartarus. Yeah? That he goes there and he just explains to them exactly what life's about, if you like. And out of that, we therefore can understand what we were saying this morning. We can get our faith rise up to explain that we know that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and every tongue confess. Not that I'm going to go into this right now, but you know, demons are just simply, if you like, the spirits of the Nephilim. Yeah? All right? And we have authority over them. It's all done and dusted. What the Lord is trying to impress upon me is that the cosmic battle that is going on at the moment is beyond comprehension. That's why I've gone through these strands of demonstrating the truth of the scripture, the strand of demonstrate everything has to be seen through the supernatural eyes, and then the strand of, of what is happening right now against the backdrop of where we have to be in Christ, okay? And I don't want it to be complicated. I'm trying to really impress on you the importance of, 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 of all this. Now, if you go to Revelation 9, you will see that there's all the locusts coming out of the earth, okay? Now, what do you think is really happening there? You know, I, I tell you, that, and I've looked at this this week, that lots of theologians really believe this stuff as real. These locusts, man, are horrible, yeah? They're Nephilim, they're all the demonic kind of stuff you can possibly imagine. They're going to be poured out. Yet Jesus says, you know, the gates of hell won't prevail. So where does that put you and me? in that scenario. We've got to look at it in supernatural eyes. See, the cosmic war that is going to happen is going to be cosmic, and you and I are going to be involved with that. That's why people like Bruce Allen are teaching what he's teaching at the moment. Because we've got to understand our standard in Christ, which begins with humility and grace and blessing and wanting to serve and honour and fulfil what God is saying to us, yeah? and confessing our sin, to enable that which the Lord wants to bestow on us to be something so incredible that we're ready for the end time. And let me earth that for you. Why do you think that Hollywood is full of what I call Nephilim films? Where you see these people who can lift up a whole building and throw it, and it gets thrown for a mile. You know, you're seeing that on movies right now. You know, if you had it 40 years ago, it was Superman. Now, where does that come from? What is it about? Because you see, Hollywood taps into the spirit realm. It taps into the wrong side of the spirit realm. Now, if these guys are doing that, am I stretching your theology a bit and your imaginations a bit? What do you think we're going to be doing, man? What are we going to be doing, man? Huh? Yeah? Now, I understand that the Bible says that persecution is coming. 
I understand that a lot of church are going to fall away. I understand that, but I know there's going to be a remnant. It's a talk I must give. It's a talk on the remnant. We're part of the remnant. And what, what God is doing is stretching us all the time. God said to me, uh, two years ago on Mount Carmel, I'm going to turn your theology upside down a second time. Okay, now to briefly, you know that I talk quite a lot about Toronto. When I went to Toronto, which was of God, yet yeah, turned my theology upside down. All right, that was the first time that God turned my theology upside down. But you know, let's not get stuck in theology, let's get taught, let's get stuck in the ways of the Lord. Interestingly, what gave Toronto incredible credibility was three things. One was they referenced it all back to Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening and everything that happened in Toronto happened in the Great Awakening in the 1740s. Secondly, there was a theologian in, in Toronto called Guy Chevreau, who was a Baptist minister, and he gave a lot of credibility. And third thing that gave, that gave credibility to the Toronto move, the English church. If, you can, if the English church take it on, the world takes it on. There's a whole load of stuff behind that. But, but, you know, we've got to be open. There is a counterfeit to Toronto, by the way. There is definitely a counterfeit. I, I'm, I won't talk about it now, but there's a counterfeit. Because everything has a counterfeit. But what I'm trying to say and explain is, this is the backdrop. This is the supernatural occurrence of what is going on. Now, let's go to the present time. How much time have I got? We need to be like the sons of Issachar. What I've tried to explain is there's so much more to the scriptures. You know, I feel the more I see, the more I realise I don't see. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I'm just, I think, Lord, I actually said the other day, Lord, give me another hundred years. I need to understand some of this. Of course, we've got eternal life. But we need to be like the sons of Issachar. Yeah, you know, we've said this for years, by the way. Just think of some of the stuff that has happened with Trump. Now, I don't think I've got time to go through this in any detail, but, you know, Trump has brought division. Yeah? In a right way, by the way. Okay, but he's brought polarisation like there never has been in the church. So much so that he's the only president where publicly the witches around the world declared that they would meet in covens at a new moon to pray against him and to put curses on him. Now, can you imagine that we live, you think about this for a minute, we live in a democratic society, don't we? For years we have accepted that whoever wins a democratic vote, then they go forward. Yeah? It's democracy, after all. Democracy, I would argue, is a biblically-based thing. It's not a theocracy, which is the, re the right Bible-based thing, but democracy is kind of, comes out of the Bible in some ways. We th look at Brexit. Okay? It was democratically voted that we go out. So why is there so much opposition so vitriolic, so violent. It's not democratic. You know, we have to humbly say, you guys won. Democracy was the Lord anyway. And we have to think about this. Now, there's a guy in the Bible, and I haven't got time to go through this, called Jehu. You remember he was a king of Israel, and he was basically sent, a, a prophet was sent by Elisha to anoint him with a whole, you know, this is how Smith Wigglesworth did it, by the way. <laughs> anoint you with a whole flask of oil. That's the good, you know, you know, we get anointed with these little things. Let's just do a whole flask, man. <laughs> so he just goes along, pours the whole thing over Jehu and says, you're going to be king of Israel. But your job is to wipe out Ahab. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So basically, Jehu goes to Jezreel. We haven't got time to go through the story. Wipes out Jezebel, yeah? And goes to Samaria gathers all the priestesses and priests of Baal and Ashtoreth, says we're going to hold a great big party, throws them in a house, this is all in 2 Kings 10, puts his army around it and says go and kill a lot of them. 
Now, when Jehu was coming into town, can you imagine what was going on? Because there was all these Baals and Ashtoreths, priestesses and priests. You know, they, it's the countries for them. There's Jehu, he's wiped out Israel. He's on the road, my goodness me, we don't like this guy. Incidentally, accompanied by a holy man, Jehonadab. You read about, he was a son of the Rechab family that you read about in Jeremiah chapter 35. Read it, okay? A holy man. So Jehu goes in and wipes them all out, accompanied by a holy man who doesn't necessarily agree with everything Jehu's doing, because Jehu does plenty wrong. You think about Trump. He marches in to Washington to clean up the swamp, exactly the words that I've written here. Okay? He went in to clean up the swamp. Now, we don't agree with everything that Trump is doing, but he's God's anointed man. And he is here to clean up the swamp. And the priestesses of Baal and Ashtoreth, now who are the modern day equivalents of them? Well, they would be, yeah, absolutely. But they're, you know, huh? Well, I would, yeah, I mean, I think so, but I would kind of bring it a bit lower than that to like the feminist movement, uh, the abortionists, the liberal lefts, all these who are anti-God and anti-Christian. They're the modern days, and they are hating every minute of what Trump's doing. They're rising up, you know, they're so tolerant, they're rising up in intolerance. You know, we have to see this through, through spiritual eyes. Do you see what the point I'm trying to make? That, you know, we look at the natural and we get all frazzled up about it, but we have to see what God is doing amongst us. Same with Brexit. I believe God wants Brexit. Yeah, we're all our hearts. We're all on one there. So this is what's happened in the last year as the decline of character of mankind. In the West, voter fraud. Brett Kavanaugh, falsely accused. Witches cursing Kavanaugh and Trump in public ceremonies. Demonic hatred expressed for all Christians and conservatives. Clergy blessing abortion clinics and drag queens featuring heavily at children's events. Yeah? yeah. We are guys. It's awful. We're getting into the days of Noah. That's the point. I don't go full circle. We're going back to the days of Noah. Do you understand that? That's when the Nephilim are going to be released. That's what it says. We've got to be ready. We've got to understand the signs of the times. We've got to read the scriptures like never before and understand them and get it into them. You know, Andy gave me a good idea the other day, and so did you, Jason. I bought, in front of you two actually, the Bible, audio Bible. Yeah? So because I spend a long time in the car. Audio Bible. What did I say? Audi, not that I've got an Audi, an audio Bible. I switch it on and I'm listening to it and I feel it impregnating my spirit. Do you understand it? I can't explain it. I don't even have to concentrate, okay, because I have to concentrate on the driving sometimes. It's impregnating my spirit. It's the Word of God. It's life itself. And the more it impregnates, what happens? What are the fruits of this happening and impregnating your spirit? The fruit of it is faith rising up. Your passion for Jesus. You're hearing the voice of the Spirit because we become and have the mind of Christ. That's what it says in Corinthians, yeah? We develop the mind of Christ. When I have the mind of Christ, I hear the Spirit of God. When I hear the Spirit of God, I do what he is doing and nothing else. When I hear the Spirit of God, I do the greater works. That's what I was referring to earlier. We were doing the greater... You know, Jesus said, we're going to do the greater works, yeah? And look what Jesus did. But he said, greater works. And that's what we're being prepared for. And I think what's, what's really important is when I was kind of looking at us this morning, I could see the Holy Spirit over the, all of us. I could see the gifting and the blessing and, and the maturity and the dedication, if I can use that word, over us. 
that the Lord was blessing. And it's really important that we understand the seriousness of the hour, yet the joy of the hour, and the mantle that we have got upon us to accomplish this. We can't do it of ourselves. And so to bring it back to where I started, it's how do we earth it? Yeah? Well, 1 Peter 1, be holy just as I am holy. It is all about holiness. Every bit of it. You are no longer part of yourselves. We belong solely to him. Are we ready to die for him? Are we ready? You know, the Bible says count ourselves dead to sin. That's the whole symbolism of baptism, isn't it? It's death to the old life and risen in the new. And we've got to remember that. And that, you know, transformation of the renewing of the mind. I, I you know, over the last couple of years, I've had so much, um, you know, I just start reading the word and it refreshes me so much. And it, it you know, I end up praising the Lord. And I, of course, I, I'm not talking about the dryness of the word here. I'm not talking about, you know, studying it with scholarship. I'm talking about allowing the Holy Spirit to illumine or illuminate it. Yeah? Amen? Amen. Can we stand up? So I don't want you to be listening. I want us to be activating. So what I'm going to... Is this okay, Andy? What I want us to pray is that we really understand from the spirit realm and see things through the supernatural eyes. Yeah? That's what we need. Even at work, we need that. What's really going on? We can't look at it with flesh. We have to look at it with spirit. So, Lord, I want to thank you, Lord. Lord, I want to thank you for everyone here and and thank you for the anointing on them and the lives that are so precious here and the Lord that they have open eyes and open ears and they hear your voice moment by moment and I pray Lord that you even more open our eyes to see the times the signs the signs of the times Lord that will enable us to move in humility but Lord with a precise word of knowledge the precise prophetic insight, the precise decision-making, with all the wisdom that we require. Lord, with signs and wonders following, Lord. Lord, we do not say that in a trite way, but we say it with sincerity and truth and knowledge that you want us to walk like that, that will bring peace uh, and, Lord, prosperity to those who hear your word. So, Lord, ignite Lord, I pray for self-ignition in each of us. I pray for a new move of the Lord in each of us as we are inspired to know your word, do your word, and bless others and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus. Amen.